good to be with you all this morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is Travis Lowe. I am the college and career pastor on staff here at Baylife. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, chapter 23, to a familiar passage. You might remember that it is totally dark on this stage. You might remember that we have begun a series, or we began a series several weeks ago, in which we are taking seriously Matthew's words in the first chapter of his gospel, this title that he applies to Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we've been considering what it means for God to be with us. For our Christmas Eve services, Mark is going to talk with us about what it means for God to be with us always. Those will be at 2, 4, and 6 p.m. We'll have uh, sign language interpretation and Spanish interpretation at our 4 p.m. services. And then again, we'll be considering what it means for God to be with us December the 29th and the 30th at our family services as Shane Drury, our high school pastor, talks about God being with us in our confusion. But this morning, I have been charged with talking to you all about what it means for God to be with us in our fear. And we are in a familiar passage, as I said before. Perhaps when you heard that we were going to be in Psalm 23, you felt the impulse that I felt this week when I sort of decided that that's what I would be teaching on. Uh, Namely, you've said to yourself, I have heard Psalm 23 before. Maybe you're a Christian and you've grown up in the church and this was on a wall plaque in your home or in your grandmother's house. Or maybe you're not a Christian, but you've grown up in Western society that sort of still has this Christ-haunted nature about it. And so you know a couple lines from Psalm 23. And when you hear that we're spending this morning in Psalm 23, your desperate hope is that you're going to hear something new this morning that you haven't heard before. I'll tell you this morning, or rather this week in my office, as I was thinking about this passage, there was a similar impulse. I was asking myself, what is something new that I can say about this familiar text? What's a new angle that I can approach it from? What's a new little piece of information that I can uh, mention in this sermon? What's something new that I can say here? And that is the great addiction of our modern culture, isn't it? That we always need to hear something new. As soon as we've heard something, we've already moved beyond it and we're ready for the next thing. But I don't know that that impulse is right when it comes to Psalm 23. As I mentioned earlier, I am the college and career pastor here, which means that I do an awful lot of weddings because I'm pastoring the people in our church that are at that stage in life where many of them are getting married. The fall for me was a particularly busy season. Between September and November, I did five or six weddings. So there were certain weekends where there was two weddings a weekend, and I was very worried about confusing the names between one and the other. (laughs) Because of that, I spent a lot of time looking at the wedding liturgy that I use. You may or may not know this, but when somebody officiates a wedding, if they take it seriously, they're not making up the ceremony on the spot. They're not improvising it. It's either memorized if you're particularly devout, or if you're like me, it's written down on a sheet of paper that you're reading from. And so I read the the wedding liturgy over and over and over again, and there's a section in the the ceremony as I officiate it called the charge where I speak to the bride and the groom and then to everybody who is there as witnesses and I I say a little bit about the significance of marriage biblically, theologically, the, the weight of entering into a covenant union with another person. But I was fortunate in the fall that I knew all of the people who I was marrying and I knew them fairly well. I knew where they were at in their walks with the Lord. And so as I was looking at this charge that I wrote several years ago for the first wedding that I officiated, I kept saying to myself, the people that I'm marrying already know all this stuff. 
They've already heard all of this before. They've heard this in premarital counseling. They've heard this in Mark's sermons on Sunday mornings. They've read books about this. There's nothing in here, in here that I'm saying that's new. And so the first inclination was I probably need to rewrite this to have something more insightful to say. But the more I thought about it, the less I felt like that was wise. And so instead, before the charge, I added this little bit in which I say to the bride and the groom, I know you both, and I know you well enough to know that everything I'm about to say is familiar. But my job as your pastor is not simply to teach you new things. My job is to call you back to ancient paths, to remind you of timeless truths that you might be prone to forget when life grows difficult. And so it is with the 23rd Psalm, especially as it relates to God with us in our fear. We will be better served this morning, not if I come up with something new, but if we hear what Psalm 23 has always said, there's a reason why it is one of the most famous pieces of scripture. And it's not because it needs to be updated, but because it needs to be revealed for what it is. And we need to hear what it's always said. And so I would invite you now, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is Psalm 23. Would you hear the word of the Lord, Baylife? A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So David begins this familiar passage with the most familiar line, the Lord is my shepherd. I've mentioned before in the opportunities that I get to teach here on Sunday mornings throughout the year that I'm in grad school. I'm studying theology at a seminary out in Orlando, which means that all of my free time is spent writing papers. And I, without fail, consistently get points deducted from all of my papers, including the ones that I wrote last week, because I never have a clear thesis statement in anything that I write. And maybe that's just because I'm kind of all over the place and I, I can't like follow anyone thought through to its conclusion. Maybe that's because I should spend more time writing my papers. Maybe that's because I should have one of my friends edit them. There's probably a whole host of reasons, but without fail, I get in trouble because I don't have clear thesis statements. And maybe you've been outside of uh, the university setting for a long time, or, or maybe the term thesis statement just sounds kind of fuzzy to you. You're not sure what that is. So, so basically, a thesis statement is this. It is a sentence in the first paragraph or so of an essay that explains what the essay is about. It's, it's short, sort of the short summary of everything that you're trying to say for the next 10 to 15 pages. In this paper, I will explain how whatever your argument is. Normally, I spend like four or five sentences talking about some things that I think are interesting that I assume the professor can discern into a coherent thesis statement, which has never been the case. <laughs> The reason I say this is because I think that Psalm 23 has a thesis statement, and it's that first line, the Lord is my shepherd. Everything that David is about to say is predicated on that line. 
Psalm 23 is David explaining what life looks like if the Lord is indeed your shepherd. And so everything that this psalm says about life and about loss, everything it says about triumph and tribulation, it is all conditioned on that first statement. If the Lord is your shepherd, then these promises will be true for you. But if the Lord is not your shepherd, then this psalm will ring hollow and it will sound like a lie. Which means that the first question we ought to ask as we step into this familiar text and see how it relates to God with us in our fear, that the first thing that we ought to consider is this question, who is your shepherd? What is shepherding you? You know, the term shepherd is one that you probably only really hear when you come to church on Sundays. We live in 2018 in Brandon, Florida, in Riverview, in Valrico, in Tampa, urban and suburban areas. It's unlikely that many of us have any sort of experience with the figure of a shepherd, how a shepherd would function in the life of a sheep. But this is familiar territory for David, the author of this psalm. He spends the first 30 or so years of his life as a shepherd. And what David knows is that in the life of a sheep, they look to the shepherd for three things. They look to the shepherd for comfort. That is, when sheep are afraid, the presence of the shepherd is something that, that gives them peace. Sheep look to the shepherd for safety. That is, when the wolves come and try to, to pick off the flock, the shepherd is the one that protects them. And sheep look to shepherds for guidance. That is, the sheep follow the shepherd. And the shepherd leads them to the places which they ought to go. And so you may hear this question that we ought to ask, who is your shepherd, what is your shepherd, and, and, and you're not really sure how to discern that. I would say this, what in your life checks those three boxes? Where do you look for guidance? Who or what do you turn to for comfort? In what do you find your safety? The, the natural reaction to, to this idea is, is to resist. Listen, I'm, I'm a leader. I'm not a follower. I'm not a sheep. I'm a proud and independent individual. I don't follow anybody but myself. But let me just tell you, human history is a consistent testimony to the fact that no matter how high you climb the ladder of leadership and power, you will always be shepherded by something or someone. Even if it's just your own notion of autonomy, we are always led and shepherded by something. So what is your shepherd? I mean, is it your family? Is that your guiding life in the midst of a, a turbulent world? Is it your spouse? Is it your finances, your job, your reputation? Is, is it your material possessions, your nice house, your car? Listen, none of these are bad things in and of themselves. In fact, many of them are good and perfect gifts from God, but they make for poor shepherds. They cannot sustain you in the midst of a Genesis 3 world, not indefinitely not from beginning to end. And they cannot make good on the promises of Psalm 23. The only one that can make good on these promises is the Lord. And so David says, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. It's important to, to probably clarify a little bit of what is meant here because there's a way of reading scripture that hears that statement from David as being a promise 
uh, of essentially this, the Lord is my shepherd, so I get what I want. That is certainly the way that people have interpreted it. If the Lord is your shepherd, then the car that you want can be yours, and the house that you want can be yours, and the job that you want can be yours. And if those things don't come to you, then clearly you're doing something wrong, or maybe the Lord's not even your shepherd. The problem is, one, I don't think that that's actually what David is getting at. But two, that's not what the rest of Scripture seems to say. Because we can look at these towering figures, especially in the New Testament, people who followed the Lord faithfully, who had lives of difficulty. See, for example, the Apostle Paul. Nobody would question, at least within the the world of Christianity, that Paul loved the Lord, did his very best to live a life of faithfulness, not a sinless life, but a life of faithfulness. And yet, what marks Paul as he follows the Lord as his shepherd is a lot of pain and suffering. He's thrown into prison. He's shipwrecked. He's beaten without cause. He's flogged. He's whipped. None of these things sound like you can have whatever you want if the Lord is your shepherd. There are very few people who would want any of those things. So then what does David mean when he says, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want? Well, Old Testament scholars say that a good way to sort of capture what David is getting at is to, is to maybe rephrase some of the popular translations. Rather than saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They say that perhaps we might say, the Lord is my shepherd and I have all that I need. The Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing. And that is saying the same thing, but it's saying it in a, in a much clearer way. Because what we want and what we need are two radically different things. And if we're dealing with needs, then the gospel actually addresses this in in a really profound way for us. Because when the Spirit indwells the believer and begins the process of sanctification, of making us to look more like Jesus, I would argue that one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in us as he unites us to Christ, as he sifts through our wants and our needs, and he shows us how few of our wants are actually really needs. How few of the things that we think we need are actually the things that we do in fact need. I would argue that maturity in the Christian life is the process of us increasingly coming to terms with the fact that other than Christ, there is little else that we actually do need. Uh, you, can, you can see this play out in the life of the Apostle Paul in one of the most famous, pas- famous passages in the New Testament, one that is profoundly misquoted all the time. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Contrary to popular opinion, that has very little to do with you winning your little league tournament or getting that promotion. Paul writes this to the Philippians from prison. And he says, I've learned the secret of contentment when I have abundance and when I'm hungry. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is to say, I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me, even when I lack things that many of us would put on our needs list, like a bed to sleep in, like three meals a day. He says, no, I can do all of this. Through Christ, And I, I would argue that he says that in light of what he says previously. I consider all things worthless compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul has grasped in Philippians. That what he needs most is not even a bed to sleep in or three meals a day. What he needs most is Christ. That is the most profound need of the human heart. 
And those other things are important. Those other things are significant. You see Paul throughout his letters caring for people who lack those things, making sure that widows are taken care of in the church, that that resources are distributed among those who have need. But he recognizes that those are not our most important needs. It's not his most important need. What he needs most is Jesus. And if he has Christ or if he is held by Christ then all of these other needs, being important as they are, he can face those without fear because he knows that what is most important is his. That's true of you and I as well. Isn't this the great source of so many of our fears, that we won't have what we need to pay our bills, to take care of our family, Uh, Maybe it's not even monetary or financial. Maybe we're afraid that we don't have the emotional resources we need to cope with the situation in front of us. And yet what Paul says is that if you have God, you have everything that you need to face what is in front of you. David says, with the Lord as my shepherd, I have what I need. And then he goes on. He describes life under the shepherd, he says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. These are scenes of life for sheep. Sheep eat grass. They drink water. And so with a shepherd leading them to these places, these are the sort of things that give life, that sustain. David says that these are the things that restore his soul. No doubt if you're a Christian in here, you've experienced the good shepherd leading you towards some of these things. Maybe it is a particular friendship from which you've drawn encouragement, and that has been green pastures for you. Maybe it's your life group and the people that you have developed uh, relationships with who can encourage you and strengthen you, and these have become still waters for you. Maybe it's, it's coming together on Sunday mornings here in this church and being led by Darnisha and the band in worship. These have become sources of life for you. David says that with the Lord as his shepherd, he is led through these places that bring life. But make no mistake, David does not think that life, even under the good shepherd, is exclusively green pastures and still waters. Because he comes to verse 4. And he says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. What's important to recognize here is that this valley of the shadow of death is not a hypothetical possibility to David. He doesn't say, if by chance, theoretically, I should walk through the valley of the shadow of death. If in the off chance, knock on wood, that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but hopefully that won't happen, in in this hypothetical circumstance, maybe I'll fear no evil. He doesn't qualify it. The valley of the shadow of death is as real as the green pastures and still waters. David's assumption is that just as surely as the shepherd leads us through green pastures and through still waters, he will also lead us through valleys. This is important for you to grasp. Hear me clearly when I say this. The gospel does not promise you a life of ease. The gospel does not promise you a life free of pain. It does not promise you a life of comfort. David doesn't presume that any of those things will be the case. No. He assumes that the valley is a reality. He assumes that you will walk through 
the valley. And yet, David says that it is possible to walk through that valley of the shadow of death without fear. He doesn't tell us that we can avoid the valley itself or the pain that comes with it, but he does say that we can walk through it without fear. He says it in particular, because you are with me. You know, when I was younger, probably around 12 years old, I decided for some strange reason that I wanted to be known among my friends as the guy who watched scary movies. I don't know where that came from. It did not come from my mother or father. But I, they were good parents and said, like, the only scary movies you can watch are the Universal Monster movies from 60 years ago. <laughs> so I picked up my TV guide, which was a thing, and I found the Universal Monster movies that were playing on AMC. So Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Dracula, Wolfman, the classics. And I would watch them when they came on TV. And I would always think during the daylight, how cool is this? Like, I am the coolest sixth grader that I know. <laughs> and I thought it was cool until it was time to go to bed. And my parents turned the lights out. And the whole house was quiet and the whole house was dark. And first 10 minutes, I was fine, but I have never slept well, and so I didn't fall asleep in those first 10 minutes, and eventually I would hear a noise, and I would look out into the void of my room, the, the darkness of my den, and I would swear that I saw Boris Karloff in the corners. <laughs> and I would see the, the two or three inch crack in the door of my closet, and I would swear to you that I saw Frankenstein's hands wrapping around the corner, getting ready to throw the closet open and chase me down the hallway. And eventually, I would work up the nerve, in spite of my fear, to run to my parents' room. And I would go into my parents' room, and I would say, you guys need to, to come to my room. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't the sort of kid that was like, I need you to check under my bed or check my closet, because here's the deal. I knew that Frankenstein was in the closet, and I knew that the wolfman was under the bed. And the only thing that happens if I invite my parents to check is that they get eaten by the wolfman. So what I would tell them was, listen, I need you to just stay in the room with me, like, until I fall asleep. I need, you, I need you to sit here with me. And my parents were good parents. And they, most of the time, every once in a while, they would say, you did this to yourself. <laughs> but most of the time, they would say, okay. And I would go back in my room, and they would turn the lights out. And they would sit in the chair in my room until I fell asleep. Here's the deal. Nothing changed. The room was still dark. And I was still fully convinced that Boris Karloff was under my bed. But I wasn't afraid anymore. And I wasn't afraid because I wasn't alone anymore. Something radical changed about the nature of the darkness when I found out that I wasn't there by myself. David says, even in the midst of the valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. That is to say that he can walk through the valley with all of its pain and all of its suffering and all of its difficulty and acknowledge those things to be true, but not be afraid in the midst of it because the shepherd has stepped down into the valley with him. That was true for David in a spiritual sense, several thousand years ago, but it's more true for you and I. It's more true for you and I in light of the season in which we find ourselves. Here now in the Christmas season, 
We are not just celebrating a particular man named Jesus who happened to be born in a barn in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. We as Christians are not celebrating an interesting historical anomaly. What we are celebrating is the second person of the Trinity uniting himself to our humanity. We are celebrating God becoming man. Earth-shattering reality. Radically different from the claims of any other religion in the world. But what we are celebrating when we say that God became man is that God, in his fullness, stepped down into the valley of a Genesis 3 world with all of its darkness. The the historic confession of of the, the church is so important for us to grasp. Jesus is not just pretending to be human. He's not just faking his way through to the cross. At the same time, being in very nature God, he has made himself nothing and entered into our humanity, which means that everything that comes with the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus in the incarnation has encountered. You may notice one of the most popular parts of the Christmas story is Joseph, Mary's fiance, Jesus' earthly father. And as you read Luke's gospel, as you read Matthew, you notice that Joseph disappears right around chapter 3, maybe chapter 4. But Mary, Jesus keeps having conversations with Mary. Jesus' brothers, he continues to interact with them. They think he's crazy. His cousins, Jesus still encounters his cousins. Joseph's gone. You know why Joseph's gone? Most likely because Joseph died sometime when Jesus was a teenager. So consider this, that the eternal Son of God becomes man and has to endure the death of his earthly father, goes to the funeral, grows up without him. So that chair at your Christmas dinner table that your mom or dad, your husband or wife once occupied, the one that you are so dreading, sitting across from, seeing empty. Jesus has entered into that valley with you. Not just intellectually, experientially. Or maybe your valley is one of diagnoses and the prognosis is grim. And over the next few months, the next few years, you should expect to see your body fail and give out under the weight of cancer, under the weight of sickness, under the weight of whatever it might be. But Jesus has entered into that valley as well. On the cross, he feels his strength fail him. Jesus enters not just into the valley of the shadow of death, but he enters into the valley of death itself, which we mark on Good Friday. But he does so, so that by dying, he might destroy the power of death so that when you face that valley, you will fear no evil. For evil has done its worst on the person of Christ, and he has triumphed on your behalf over it. I told you at the beginning of the sermon that I I would be talking about God with us in our fear, but it's probably better to say that what we're dealing with here is that we should not fear because God is with us. God is with us by his spirit. God is with us supremely so in the incarnation of Jesus the Son. 
who took on flesh to dwell among us and descend into the valleys of a Genesis 3 world so that we would not be alone in the middle of it. So I don't know. I don't know what the valleys are in your life. I don't know what the things that terrify you might be. I can't deny, nor would I ever attempt to deny the fact that they are painful and they are agonizing. The world is not as it should be. But I can say that you don't need to be afraid if the Lord is your shepherd because the shepherd has entered the valley with you. And every nativity scene that you will pass on the way home is a plastic monument to that fact. David recognizes this. Not that he needs to be oblivious to the pain in his life, but that he needs not fear it. Which is why he can say at the end, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I pray that you're able to say that as well, with the Lord as your shepherd, both in the green pastures and in the valleys. He walks with you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you. We thank you uh, that you have entered into the darkness of this world to restore, to make new. We thank you that Christ is God with us and he has sent the spirit to walk with us now. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, whatever it is that they might go through, whatever difficulty they're facing in this season, God, I pray that they would recognize that you have not abandoned them in the valley, but you have stepped down into it with them and you will lead them through safely to green pastures and into your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you'd comfort those who are in need. Uh, Lord, that you would strengthen those who've grown weary that you would remind us all of your presence. We ask in the name of Christ Jesus, we say amen. So as we step now into the Christmas season, may that title be more apparent to you than it was before. That God is with us, both in the green pastures and in the valleys. And with that in mind, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you on Christmas where we mark the day that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Take care.